Hello, and welcome to another episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Tucker Oliver, and I'm a medical student at the Medical College of Georgia. And my name is Sarah Chapel, also a medical student here at MCG. On today's episode, we will discuss the diagnosis and evaluation of biliary atresia, a life-threatening cause of neonatal jaundice. We will also discuss the complications of the surgical reapproximation of the biliary tract known as the Kasai procedure. Joining us today is Dr. Naharika Bade, an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia and a pediatric gastroenterologist at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Bade. Thank you for inviting me on for today's episode. I'm looking forward to our discussion on biliary atresia and neonatal cholestasis. Dr. Bade, can you define biliary atresia? So, so biliary atresia is a relatively rare condition. So incidence is more in these East Asian countries, more in Taiwan and Japan. In the United States, the instance is about 1 in 10,000 per live birth. So by definition, it's a progressive sclerosing inflammatory process of the extrahepatic and the intrahepatic bile ducts in infants under 3 months of age that leads to fibrosis and obliteration of the biliary tree. While biliary atresia is rare, identifying these children as soon as possible is essential since the prognosis worsens the later these infants are diagnosed. That's right, Tucker. The sooner the better. And what is the typical presentation of biliary atresia? An early sign of biliary atresia is jaundice, which is the yellowish discoloration of the skin, sclera, body fluids, and the mucous membranes. And another key finding that we see in these infants is the presence of acolic stools, which is non-pigmented stools. So they have these clay, chalky-colored stools, classically. And the jaundice is from the buildup of bilirubin in the body, right? That's right. So infants with biliary atresia usually develop jaundice by about three to six weeks of age, and it's characterized by an elevation in the direct or conjugated bilirubin in the serum and a level of more than one milligram per deciliter or a direct bilirubin level of more than 20% of the total bilirubin level is consistent with neonatal cholestasis. And the progressive obliteration and obstruction of bioflow would lead to the buildup of bilirubin, correct? Yes, and this leads to the progressive worsening cholestasis and eventually fibrosis and cirrhosis that might eventually end up in end-stage liver disease in the infant if untreated or detected too late. Wow, I can see why it's so important to recognize this condition early. Yep. Did you know that biliary atresia is by far the most common reason for liver transplant for children in the United States? Oh, that's interesting. The prognosis of these infants with biliary atresia depends on the early detection and surgical intervention known as the Kasai procedure, Kasai hepatoportoenterostomy, ideally performed before 45 to 60 days of life. How do infants who get a Kasai do afterward? Good question. While the Kasai procedure can be life-saving, there are still significant and sometimes lifelong considerations that providers should be aware of when caring for these children. But before we get into more details, Tucker, why don't you start off with a clinical case for us? Sure thing. A four-week-old male newborn is brought to the pediatrician because of the yellowing of his eyes and skin for the past two weeks. His mother has noticed that his stools have become more pale over the last week. She recently switched from breast to formula feeding and thought this might be the cause, but she wants to know for sure. The infant was delivered vaginally at 38 weeks gestation with no reported complications during pregnancy or delivery. Otherwise, he has been growing well and currently is on the 60th percentile for weight and 55th percentile for length. Great. So let's talk more about this baby's jaundice. 
We mentioned before that an early sign of biliary atresia is jaundice, characterized by yellowing of the skin and sclera, right? So let's quickly review some basics. What causes jaundice? Jaundice is a yellow discoloration of tissue due to the accumulation of bilirubin, a hemoglobin breakdown product. Its complete processing cycle depends on continual uptake into the liver, adequate rates of conjugation within the liver, and efficient excretion via outflow tracts, either into the blood or into the intestines, as conjugated bilirubin. If any of these processes are interrupted, this can lead to a buildup in bilirubin and cause tissue color and lab value changes. Great job. So there are two different types of hyperbilirubinemia during infancy that are important. What do you remember about this from medical school? Well, we have to distinguish between conjugated versus unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia since that can provide context to the system's functionality as a whole. That's true. The liver has to be working correctly and efficiently to conjugate the bilirubin. A backup before the liver causes unconjugated bilirubin to accumulate. Most people are familiar with jaundice in the newborn. So how does this happen? A jaundiced infant at birth is an example of unconjugated bilirubinemia. Infants can present this way due to the combination of hemolysis of fetal hemoglobin and its reduced conjugation from the immaturity of their liver enzyme, UDP glucuronositol transferase. Labs be positive for a rise in unconjugated bilirubin due to an overload of destroyed red blood cells. You would also see this in ABO-RH incompatibility or hematomas due to birth complications or vitamin K deficiencies. Exactly. So what can bilirubin levels tell us about breastfeeding? Breastfed infants receive less fluid volume and fewer calories compared to formula-fed infants, leading to mild dehydration, decreased stool elimination, and increased enterohepatic circulation. Increased feeding frequency of 8 to 12 times per day helps increase maternal milk supply and improves urine and stool output and bilirubin excretion. This is breastfeeding jaundice. This should be distinguished from breast milk jaundice, which is due to increased levels of beta-glucuronidase, which deconjugates the bilirubin in the mother's milk, which then increases the reabsorption of bilirubin. This presents within two weeks of birth with unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Excellent. So can you think of any genetic causes of unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia? Well, there is Krigler-Najjar syndrome, which is a rare autosomal recessive inherited disorder. It's due to the reduced activity or absence of UDP glucoronosyl transferase. There are two types. Type 1 has a poor prognosis and typically requires emergent treatment during the hyperbilirubinemia crisis. Once a patient develops kernicterus, it may be irreversible. While a mild type 2 form has some activity of the UGT enzyme and might present with milder symptoms, this can even be asymptomatic and has a better prognosis than type 1. And then there is Gilbert syndrome, which is a downregulation of the same enzyme during times of stress, but it usually presents later in life as mild jaundice. Great work! Okay, so what about conjugated hyperbilirubinemia? What do you remember about this from medical school? In these cases, the liver is working and conjugating bilirubin, but outflow into the intestinal tract is somehow prevented. Given that the infant has not likely had time to manifest pathologies such as hepatitis or cirrhosis, the primary concern and do not miss etiology of biliary outflow blockage would be some form of structural malformation in the biliary tree. Absolutely. 
So our differential narrows when we discover that the bilirubin is making its way all through the processing but stops just short of its final destination. So in addition to biliary atresia, other rare but important causes of conjugated hyperbilirubinemia that should be on your differential diagnosis include allergic syndrome, which is due to bile duct paucity, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, galactosemia, mitochondrial diseases, hypothyroidism, panhypopituitarism. And don't forget about infections such as herpes simplex virus and cytomegalovirus. And if there was limited antenatal care, we should always uh, check for torch titers. Okay, so now we have discussed about the potential differential diagnosis. Let's get back to our clinical case. Tell me more about the physical exam of this infant. The infant is, for the most part, well-appearing. Vital signs are within normal limits. Scleral icterus is present and his skin appears jaundiced. I'm concerned because on abdominal exam, the liver is palpated three centimeters below the right costal margin. The rest of the physical exam is normal. Let's quickly talk about the liver exam. What would you expect on palpation for an infant for a normal liver exam? The liver should be easily palpated in most children at one to two centimeters below the right costal margin. A normal liver should feel soft and easily movable upon inspiration. That's right. Remember, when palpating a liver, you should start palpating from the lower right quadrant and work towards the coastal margin. And ensure you direct your fingers inwards upon each inspiration to feel the edge of the liver. So, what typically causes hepatomegaly? General mechanisms of hepatomegaly include inflammation, excessive storage, infiltration, congestion, and obstruction, right? Yes. So, this baby you introduced in this case is four weeks old, is jaundiced, and has a palpable liver. You also mentioned earlier that the mom had noticed pale stools. Are you getting concerned? Yes, definitely. Any description of chalky gray, white, or pale yellow stools is worrisome, since this could be due to a lack of bilirubin in the digestive tract from a possible obstruction. Exactly. So this presentation is undoubtedly concerning for obstructive jaundice and warrants immediate evaluation and intervention. So what would be our next best step? I would start with labs including a CBC, CMP, direct bilirubin, PTINR, GGT, and we should also get labs to rule out any infection, a TSH and free T4 if the newborn screen results are not readily available, and also if there's any concerns for sepsis, we should check for any urine cultures and blood cultures. So what results would you expect for an infant with biliary atresia? We would expect a high total bilirubin with direct bilirubin comprising most of the increased levels. Good job. Shifting back to our patient's case, labs include total bilirubin 16, direct bilirubin 13, alkaline phosphatase 2000, AST 63, ALT 55, GGT 154. So the GGT is elevated. Are you concerned with that? Well, the GGT is an enzyme involved in glutathione metabolism, and it is a sensitive parameter for both cholestasis and alcohol use. However, GGT can be elevated in infants up until around three months old. Uniquely, it is not elevated in diseases of the bone, unlike alkaline phosphatase, which would be elevated in bone and liver pathologies. That's correct. GGT can be elevated in infants up to 130, 120 for up to three to six months of age. Usually, they reach the normal adult values by about seven months of age. So an elevation is concerning only in conjunction with other elevations. So like your direct bilirubin is elevated, your PTINR is elevated. So that makes it significant. Just the GGT by itself being elevated is not a significant concern. Again, values less than 130 or close to. So what about the direct versus total bilirubin? What do you think about that? 
With a direct bilirubin of 13 out of the total 16, we observed that most of the bilirubin in the blood is conjugated, which is concerning given that conjugated bilirubin has undergone an enzymatic transformation in the liver and should be flushed out through the intestinal system. This increases our suspicion that liver enzymes are functioning, but the conjugated bilirubin cannot exit the liver. Great job. Okay, since we suspect an issue with the post-hepatic delivery of bile, we should also order a write-up a quadrant ultrasound, typically fasting, so which is quick and easy part of the initial evaluation of biliary atresia. What findings would you typically get on an abdominal ultrasound if this is biliary atresia? So, right upper quadrant ultrasound would show an absent or poorly defined gallbladder, but the presence of gallbladder by itself does not exclude biliary atresia. Other signs that you would see are a triangular cord sign and changes in the hepatic subcapsular blood flow. So, Tucker, abdominal ultrasounds are often inconclusive when evaluating for biliary atresia. So, what would the next step be? I would want imaging that shows the tract and establishes patency. So, the next step would be to order a HIDA scan, right? Excellent. Can you describe how the HIDA scan works? The HIDA scan is a diagnostic imaging technique that evaluates hepatocellular function and patency of the biliary system by following a radio labeled tracer into the liver and out through the biliary system into the small intestine. Great job. One crucial thing should be done before the HIDA scan for these infants. Do you know what that is? Yes, the infant should be on phenobarbital, which is used to increase the biliary excretion of bile. That's right. So phenobarbital-enhanced hepatobiliary scintigraphy is highly accurate in ruling out biliary atresia. Pretreatment with phenobarbital is 5 mg per kilogram per day for 5 days prior to the HIDA scan. And the purpose of giving the phenobarbital is to enhance the biliary excretion. So this helps minimize the possibility of a false positive study in a patient with a patent biliary system but poor excretion. So overall, HIDA scan has a very good sensitivity of 83 to 100%, whereas the specificity is low, about 33 to 80%. So when you see that there is excretion of tracer into the intestine, then that typically excludes biliary atresia. But a non-excreting HIDA scan is not a confirmatory test for biliary atresia. So you can also see non-excreting HIDA scans whenever there is concerns for allergy syndrome because there's not enough ducts, right? or if there's any plugging anywhere due to maybe cystic fibrosis, or in a kid where there is sluggish flow within the biliary tract, which we see in cases with TPN-induced cholestasis, and in cases with any neonatal hepatitis. So a non-excreting HIDA would need more workup, but an excreting HIDA would rule out biliary attrition. Good to know. So what about a liver biopsy? When is this indicated? Good question. So in a kid who has a non-excreting HIDA scan, the next step would be to involve our pediatric surgeons. So we take them to the OR for a procedure which is known as the intraoperative cholangiogram, which is the gold standard test to confirm biliary atresia. So while doing the intraoperative cholangiogram, contrast media is injected directly into the biliary tree to delineate the anatomy. And if there is concerns that the tracer is not tracking through well, that's when they confirm that there is biliary atresia, right? So that is when a liver biopsy would be done. Biopsies are expedited. And at that point, if that is confirmed, the surgeons proceed with a Kasai hepatopotroenterostomy. So typical findings on a liver biopsy for a kid with biliary atresia would be bile plugging and proliferation of the bile ducts. And in later stages, like let's say if we are doing the biopsy in an older infant, you would see more fibrosis and cirrhosis. But this might be missed in an infant where the biopsy is done earlier. Thank you for that insight. 
So back to our patient case. We have ruled out other causes of conjugated hyperbilirubinemia and his abdominal ultrasound and HIDA scan are concerning for biliary atresia. He also has an IOC confirming biliary atresia. He undergoes a liver biopsy demonstrating proliferation of bile ducts and bile plugging. This confirms his diagnosis with high probability of liver involvement. If we anticipate he will need a Kasai procedure, what needs to be done? So while the kid is being prepared for surgery, it's important to note that these kids have a degree of fat malabsorption because of the deficiency of bile salts, right? So the bile is not flowing as freely and bile salts are needed for fat absorption. So they have to take anywhere between 125 to 140% of their estimated daily caloric intake. And then we have to aim for an ideal weight gain of at least 20 to 30 grams per day. We should also make sure that they are started on vitamin A, D, E, and K supplementation because these are the fat-soluble vitamins, right? What about fats? I read that medium-chain triglycerides, or MCTs, are critical components of supplementation for cholestasis. That's a good point. So whenever the infant is being fed, there are two different kinds of fats, long-chain triglycerides and medium-chain triglycerides. Long-chain triglycerides would require bile salts for their absorption. But instead, if you give a formula that has more medium-chain triglycerides, they do not need bile salts for their absorption. So they kind of bypass all this pathway. So that way you're ensuring that the kid is gaining adequate weight. So we prefer to give formulas that have more MCTs like progestamil or uh, alimentin. Or if the kid is being breastfed, we usually ask for fortification with these formulas. And eventually we aim for at least like 24 or 27 kilocalories per ounce and make sure that they're gaining their weight. That's important to keep in mind. So let's talk about the Kasai procedure, which involves a hepatic portoenterostomy with a Roux-en-Y enteroanastomosis, right? That's right. In simpler terms, the goal is to reconnect the liver to the intestinal tract. First, the damaged bile ducts are removed. Then, a small segment of the intestine is sewn to the liver or remaining patent common bile duct. Is this procedure typically successful? So let's say if the kid gets this procedure done prior to 45 days of life more than 80% end up achieving a normal bile flow. Whereas conversely, if the procedure is done later, like after 90 days of life or after 120 days of life, only less than or about 20% achieve normal bile flow. And eventually about 80% of the kids that end up getting a Kasai eventually end up requiring a liver transplant later in their life. And one thing that we do is serially monitor their direct bilirubin levels after the procedure is done. So let's say three months post-Kasai procedure, if the direct bilirubin has trended down to less than 2 mg per deciliter, then that tells us that the procedure is successful and that means that the bile is actually draining successfully into the intestine, right? So if you see that the direct bilirubins are not trending down or they're consistently staying up, then that means that the procedure is unsuccessful. So what are the potential complications of the Kasai procedure? There are a few serious complications that I worry about as a pediatric gastroenterologist in these kids. First is ascending cholangitis, which is an infection of the biliary tree. Also, like I said before, if the surgery is unsuccessful, the flow of bile remains blocked. And as more and more bile accumulates in the liver, it's toxic to the hepatocytes. So eventually they develop fibrosis, cirrhosis, and require a liver transplant by age two, if not corrected. And even if surgery is successful, most kids end up requiring liver transplant due to complications of the Kasai procedure, like ascending cholangitis, or if there is this progressing fibrosis, they develop signs of um, portal hypertension, bleeding, ascites, so on and so forth. Can you think of any other potential complications that should be monitored for in this type of surgery? 
Similar to other abdominal surgical procedures, I would worry about postoperative bleeding, small bowel obstruction from adhesions, and internal hernia. Good job. Don't forget about anastomotic leaks. Gastrointestinal tissue is often difficult for the surgeons to work with. It certainly seems like a difficult procedure. How often do these complications occur? So between 40 to 80% of the patients with uh, Kasai experience at least one episode of bacterial cholangitis before the age of 2 years and about 25% of patients experience multiple episodes. Wow, so even after an uncomplicated surgical course and appropriate prophylaxis, these patients are still at risk of cholangitis. Yes, despite improvements in the post-operative management, the incidence of cholangitis has remained stable over time. So One good thing is that when the infant is developing cholangitis that means the procedure is successful the bile is actually draining well but yes this complication can always occur so let's take some time to talk about cholangitis what have we d- learned in medical school about this well we know that the surgery directly reestablishes the biliary connection between the liver and small intestine and this has not changed over time the leading theory for increased risk is that bacteria have a much shorter distance to travel to the intrahepatic biliary tracts from the intestine The process is similar to females with their shorter urethras having an increased risk of UTIs. Excellent. Other etiologies that have been suggested are a bacterial translocation from the lymphatics, hematogenous spread via the portal vein, and inflammatory immune response. Oh, interesting. So what is done to prevent these complications post procedure? So there's different practices between different centers. From my experience, the infant gets IV antibiotics for about a week after the procedure and later they end up being on a longer prophylaxis for about a year, usually with Bactrim in my experience. And after that they're not on any regular prophylaxis, but they get treated for episodes as they come. Prophylactic conservative antibiotic use post procedure combined with quick and effective treatment has decreased the rate of recurrent cholangitis. What about using Charcot's triad? Isn't this an established way to identify ascending cholangitis? Good question. What do you know about Charcot's triad? Well, in adults, Charcot's triad is a collection of signs and symptoms consistent with obstructive ascending cholangitis. It includes right upper quadrant pain, jaundice and fever. I also know that if you include shock characterized by low blood pressure, tachycardia and an altered mental status, the presentation is then known as Reynolds pentad. So if these classic symptoms exist, why is it still sometimes challenging to diagnose ascending cholangitis? Those are classic symptoms and yes, they can be helpful to remember to work up cholangitis especially for your board questions. However, the Charcot triad is not as sensitive when it comes to pediatric patients and especially with infants, they don't complain about this right upper quadrant pain, right? So it's more of a clinical suspicion for cholangitis that you have than looking for these three classic signs that are mentioned in the triad. So how would you evaluate a patient with a history of biliary atresia for acute cholangitis? When there is suspicion for cholangitis with symptoms of jaundice and fever, we would get a CBC, CMP, direct bilirubin and blood cultures. We could also get an ultrasound with Doppler depending on the presentation. Good job. I have read that portal hypertension can lead to ascites, hypersplenism and variceal bleeding, which are associated with significant morbidity and mortality. How is portal hypertension managed in children with biliary atresia? In kids who have portal hypertension, so serial monitoring of the platelet counts is very important and also a good exam to check for any splenomegaly. And different centers have different practices about performing uh, surveillance endoscopies and considering a primary prophylaxis to prevent development of any viruses in the future. Let's say if the 
kid does have portal hypertension but that's not something that's regularly done so the most common practice is they keep monitoring the kids and if they do develop any complications of portal hypertension like bleeding esophageal varix then they we resort to stopping the bleed at that point with banding or injection of a sclerosant and then consequently after they're um, serially monitored with surveillance endoscopies and then they are banded as needed if there are any varices that are progressing and rarely balloon tamponade or portosystemic shunting would be required if the kid continues to have recurrent episodes of bleeding that are not able to be controlled with banding wow these complications are significant and the survival rates after the kasai procedure are not the easiest to come to grips with have there been any recent advances does technique during the procedure make a difference well there's no data to suggest any difference between laparoscopic or robotic approaches for the kasai procedure That is unfortunate that the prognosis is poor. Right. So my mentor always used to say this rule of one third where we used to always talk to the parents about this rule of one third. So we tell them that after the kid gets the Kasai procedure done, one third of the kids end up having a successful Kasai and not end up requiring a transplant and just have an uneventful course throughout. one third end up draining the kasai successfully but later as they grow into adulthood they start developing complications from the kasai and one third uh, straight up don't drain well and they fail immediately that's interesting thank you for simplifying it like that for us so what i understand is that the kasai procedure can result in unavoidable complications and sequelae but it is certainly necessary for survival yes it is necessary that's really important to keep in mind shifting back to our patient's case Our patient undergoes an uncomplicated Kasai procedure with no immediate postoperative complications. So we just discussed the importance of maintaining a high index of suspicion for acute cholangitis. What unique recommendations do you have for clinicians treating these patients in the months following the procedure? For the first one year of life, we have to make sure that the kid stays on some kind of prophylaxis to prevent the episodes of cholangitis, and the most commonly used antibiotic is Bactrim from my experience, and it's later discontinued after one year of age. Ursodeoxycholic acid or ursodiol has been used to promote postoperative bile flow while glucocorticoids were previously used in the past clinical evidence has not shown much benefit over the others so it's not being commonly used in the centers now as um, it used to be and since these patients also have decreased bile salts leading to fat malabsorption they require uh, 130 to 150% of the recommended caloric intake for their age and will require fat soluble vitamin supplements as discussed before uh, as like how they are prepared pre kasai even post kasai this is what is required if we are anticipating a liver transplant for this kid and addition of glucose polymer powders or mct oils might be considered if the kid is unable to meet his caloric needs ng feeds or gt placement might be considered or even tpn as needed these children are also at higher risk of infection and should stay current on immunizations Hepatocellular carcinoma is rare affecting about 1% of children with biliary atresia. Children should have imaging done if there is any uh, concerns for any liver masses to delineate any liver lesions on the ultrasound and also should have a alpha fetoprotein level checked. Another complication that these kids might have is intractable pruritus. So if they are then they have to be treated symptomatically and that is one of the problematic complications. So what indications are necessary to consider liver transplantation in these children? Certainly a failed Kasai procedure, so if the direct bilirubins are failing to normalize within 3 months of procedure, that's definitely one indication. And if there's episodes of recurrent bacterial cholangitis 
or if the kid is having any complications of portal hypertension like bleeding, uh, development of ascites uh, or spontaneous bacterial peritonitis frequently, or if there's severe pruritus, uh, severe growth failure or um, any other complications like development of pulmonary hypertension or hepatorenal syndrome. What does the management of these patients involve after the liver transplant? For the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases, or AASLD, post-transplantation is a balance of immunosuppressive therapy and serial monitoring of uh, liver function tests. The treatment is usually most intensive for the early post-operative period or post-transplant period. And if there's no concerns for rejection, uh, the immunosuppressive therapy, the dosage is weaned down to the least toxic level possible. And we always worry about post-transplant infection in these patients. And one of the dreaded complications is post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease, which can happen because Epstein-Barr virus. And it's treated with rituximab if that happens. Operative complications that we check for are similar to those discussed previously with the Kasai procedure. So Dr. Bade, as with all congenital pathologies in the neonate, I'm sure this process is overwhelming for parents experiencing the treatment process with their child. How do you address this with families? Education and empathy are key, so parents need to understand the treatment course and have a fair understanding of the challenging road ahead. And like I have mentioned before, I usually mention this rule of one-thirds to them, so that kind of sets their expectations beforehand. There are multiple studies that have demonstrated high levels of stress in parents of patients with biliary atresia post-diagnosis, even up to like three years after the diagnosis. Personally, what I have found most important is having a multidisciplinary team with experience in treating biliary atresia and experience in treating kids with chronic liver diseases, have our surgeons involved, have dedicated dietitians involved, feeding therapists involved, and child psychologists involved. So all of these will play a key role. Excellent. Thank you for enlightening us today, Dr. Bade. But it's time to begin wrapping up our episode. Let's summarize the key points from our talk. Sure. I'll start us off. Biliary atresia refers to a malformation of the intrahepatic and extrahepatic system, usually either fibrosed or missing at birth. The gallbladder may or may not be present. This is likely due to an embryonal malformation or acquired lesion. The exact etiology is usually unknown. 10 to 35% of cases are correlated to other malformations, such as situs inversus, asplenia, or cardiac anomalies. Biliary atresia affects around 1 in 10,000 live births in the U.S., with females presenting more commonly than males. Pathology will present as bile outflow continues to be obstructed, and the bile accumulates in the liver in proximal bloodstream. Often, parents notice that their new baby's skin is yellowing at home since it usually presents weeks after birth. If they are attending their follow-ups, then their primary care provider could potentially identify jaundice at their two-week follow-up. Parents may also notice the lighter or acolic stools due to the prohibition of bile outflow. Hepatomegaly may also be present. As we saw in our patient in the case, admission is warranted. And a CMP, direct bilirubin, PT, INR, TSH, and free T4 are ordered immediately for jaundice. We might also order alpha-1 anatrypsin to evaluate for deficiency. The patient is also quickly taken for a right upper quadrant ultrasound. On labs, we would expect a conjugated hyperbilirubinemia pattern, increased aminotransferases, and alkaline phosphatase, and increased GGT. On ultrasound, we might see a malformed biliary tree and absence of the gallbladder. A liver biopsy is usually performed. 
The gold standard is intraoperative cholangiogram. If left untreated, biliary atresia can cause secondary biliary cirrhosis and death quickly. Early cirrhosis can begin in as little as nine weeks. In the United States, we have a high incidence of suspicion to scan the portal tract if labs suggest extrahepatic obstruction, and we observe prolonged jaundice, so the pathology is rarely missed. As we've seen in clinic, parents vary in their tendencies to have their children evaluated, so this pathology is a good reason for them to keep their two- and four-week follow-up appointments. The Kasai procedure is performed to treat biliary atresia. Pathologic ducts are removed, and the small intestine is sewn directly to the liver to allow bile drainage. This is performed in the initial hospital admission. Without intervention, cirrhosis is inevitable around nine weeks of age. Therefore, obstructive jaundice is a do-not-miss diagnosis in the neonate with late-onset jaundice. Even with the Kasai, patients may still need liver transplants later in life. Other complications include cholangitis, which can affect patients over six months following the procedure, and portal hypertension, which is present in greater than 60% of cases. Because of this procedure's uniquely high complication rate, patients are monitored closely in the post-operative period. You summarized our discussion well. So the take-home point that I want to give from our discussion today is do not wait to fractionate the bilirubin levels. Uh, in a breastfed infant who is still jaundiced at three weeks of age or a formula-fed infant who is jaundiced at two weeks of age, I would always recommend that the provider gets a total and direct bilirubin level. That would ensure that we don't delay our diagnosis. So when in doubt, don't wait, fractionate. Thank you for having me in our discussion today. Thank you for joining us. An additional thanks to Dr. Rebecca Yang, who provided editing and peer review of today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Free CME credit is also available for today's episode. Please refer to our show notes for the link. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.